Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast this week, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here with John Mitchell. We've got a lot to talk about this week, which is, you know, crazy given the fact that we've been shut down for so long, but... Oklahoma State is feeding us plenty of fodder to talk about with uh, Chuba Hubbard and Mike Gundy and everything that's been going on there. So we're going to get into that in the opening segment. And then in our second segment, we'll be talking about the recent talk that's been going on about transitions from the FBS to the FCS and how teams might make that move down, especially in light of everything that's been going on with the coronavirus and its impact on athletic departments. Before we dive in, though, how are you doing this week, John? I'm doing all right. Um, you know, ready to ready to get started on this. We do, like you said, have a good bit to get into, which is nice in a way, but not nice in the context of what actually happened with Oklahoma State, so I'd be really very excited to talk to you about it. I know we exchanged a couple texts back and forth earlier uh, on Monday about it, but I, I'm really excited to get to, to speak to you about it, um, not in person, but actually talking. So Certainly. Well, let's, let's have a quick rundown of everything that went down. And just so everybody knows, we're recording early Tuesday, so... Anything that develops from here on out, you can hit us up on Twitter because, you know, we're working on a time delay here. But basically, this all started on Monday. And you have, basically, what happened is CBS sports writer Kyle Boone tweets out this photo on Monday, 11.34 a.m. Eastern, of head coach Mike Gundy wearing an OAN t-shirt on a fishing trip on Lake Texoma. And for those of you who don't know, OAN, One American News Network, is it, it, it's a far-right news network. This is a network for people who think Fox News is too liberal. We'll just put it that way. I think that's the the the, the most judicious way I can describe the network. It, I, I, I won't go any further. You'll, you'll get my feelings on them soon enough. But they tweet out, this gets tweeted out. A couple of hours later, Heisman hopeful running back Chuba Hubbard, we've talked about him and the fact that he's coming back for Oklahoma State makes the team a Big 12 hopeful this year. And he's got a real shot at the Heisman if he puts up numbers like he has over the past couple years. Oklahoma State's hopes rest on this kid. And he sees this photo of Mike Gundy in an OAN t-shirt and he retweets it. At 2.48 p.m. with the following comment, quote, I will not stand for this. This is completely insensitive to everything going on in society, and it's unacceptable. I will not be doing anything with Oklahoma State until things change. End quote. Change in all caps. And... Over the next couple of hours, you see things blow up. You know, standout linebacker Eamon Ogbong Bamiga tweets out an hour later, speaking out, 
you know, I stand with him. Or he says this a couple minutes later. He stands with, with Chuba Hubbard. Uh, offensive tackle Tevin Jenkins comes out, tweets out his support for the entire offensive line standing behind Hubbard. You know, you have players who have recently entered the transfer portal or who, you know, were in, you know, have recently transferred. Patrick Macon, Elsie Greenwood come out talking about how they were called hood rats and thugs on multiple occasions. Um, said to Canyon Williams, he was going to send you back to South Dallas, basically saying, I'm going to send you back, you know, where you came from. And, you know, you had former players as well coming out, A.C. Green, Justice Hill, and others, all speaking to a similar culture. You had athletic director Mike Holder announcing at 6.44 p.m. that, quote, this afternoon has been very disturbing. The tweets from the current and former players are of grave concern, end quote. And then less than an hour after that, you get this non-apology apology. And, you know, let's just play it. And y'all can listen to it. And then we're going to discuss this. In light of today's tweet with the uh, t-shirt I was wearing, uh, I, uh, I met with uh, some players and uh, realized it's a very sensitive issue with what's going on uh, in today's society. And so we had a great meeting and uh, made aware of some things that uh, players feel like that can make our organization or our culture even better than it is here at Oklahoma State. And I'm looking forward to making some changes, and it starts at the top with me, and we got good days ahead. I'll start off by first saying that I went about, I went about the wrong way by tweeting. I'm not someone that, you know, has to you know, tweet something to make change. I should have went to him as a man, and I'm, all, I'm more about action. So that was bad on my part. But from now on, we're going to focus on bringing change, and that's the most important thing. Okay, so now that you've heard this, let's talk about this video. And you only heard the audio, but just imagine Mike Gundy standing on the left side of the video, Chuba Hubbard on the, the right side of the video, and the words cowboy culture emblazoned behind it. it. You can find the video on Twitter. Chuba's the one who originally tweeted it out uh, with a very cryptic message. Change is coming. I promise you that. I have to ask you, John, I've been yammering a lot about this case. When you saw that video... Given everything we'd seen over the few hours beforehand as we were chatting with one another on Monday, what were your thoughts? It was about 60 seconds of exactly the problem that's been going on in college athletics for a long time. If you, For those of you that just listened to the video, you'll notice one stark contrast. And that's that Chuba Hubbard apologized when he didn't have a damn thing to apologize about. And Mike Gundy didn't say he was sorry one time. Not one time in the video. I find that strange and more than a little bit concerning that Chuba was the only guy who apologized in the video. And he apologized for, in his mind, going about it the wrong way. But that seemed to me like a forced apology 
in some kind of vein. It didn't really look like he super wanted to be there, just based on his posture and the look on his face. I don't know, you know, what went on behind closed doors that led to that video. I found it strange that the athletic director an hour beforehand, like you said, had tweet had sent out a statement that honestly was very powerful, very short, but a very powerful statement that to me made it seem like in that moment that Mike Gundy wasn't going to be the coach of Oklahoma State for the, in the next 24 or 48 hours. It was going to be a major change. And, you know, maybe that still happens, but that video made it at least sound on some level that things were, you know, ironing out between Gundy and the locker room because, I mean, things were spiraling downhill. Like you said in the beginning, um, you had all these former players and stuff coming out talking about a culture of insensitivity and, I mean, honestly, even racism when you really come down to it because when you look at the word thug and you look at that nomenclature that it implies, you know, to put it bluntly, in today's society, white people use the word thug as a replacement for the N-word. That's what white people use the word thug for nowadays. Yeah, and yeah. It's or the word hood rat, right. which was Absolutely. also tweeted out by Greenwood. So, right. yeah, you get this coded language, and, it, it, like, first of all, I want to know who was saying this to them. And, <clears throat> you know, since Monday, Greenwood's tweet has been deleted, it, but evidence is there forever. We have the exact language that was there. I have copies of it. We all have copies of it. And, you know... We've seen what happened here. Megan's tweets were huge, talking about how he and other players had, had you know, had threats that they were going to get sent back to the hood. It, what the hell does that mean other than, you know, we? It, it's a plantation mentality where we have power over you and we will do exactly what we want with you. And that's exactly how this video comes out for me. It's a Viet Cong confession from, you know, from Hubbard. And Mike Gundy isn't contrite in the least. The fact that he comes out and says, you know, what, I, I, I don't remember the exact words. We just listened to them. But, you know, he, he basically says that he, this is finally coming to light for him. What hole has he been living in to, for this? You know, he for a guy who talked about opening up the economy of Oklahoma on the backs of black players, he's been social distancing very well if he had absolutely no clue of anything that's been going on the past couple weeks. Right. And, you know, this isn't the first time we've seen Mike Gundy step out of line essentially like he's he's had many occasions where without being prompted he shared views that could be deemed radical by people who've listened to them so you know and that Bamani Jones tweeted pretty much pretty quickly after Chuba Hubbard tweeted um that he was not going to be doing anything with Oklahoma State football until things change that it wasn't just that picture that picture by itself of Gundy wearing an OAN t-shirt isn't what prompted the whole thing. It was just the straw that broke the camel's back. 
And if that's the kind of thing that Gundy is willing to show publicly, he's willing to get his picture made and that kind of T-shirt, wearing a T-shirt supporting a news network that recently called the Black Lives Matter protesters a farce and, you know, questioned their legitimacy and all of that, you know, what is he saying and what is he doing when the doors are closed and the cameras are off? I think that's been the question that really popped into my mind from this is, is who is that guy when cameras aren't rolling and the players, his former players and current players were giving us a glimpse of who that guy was, you know? And one of my favorite sayings is when someone shows you who they are, believe them. And Mike Gundy has shown us who he is and we need to believe that that's who he is. I don't buy in to, if he was sorry, he would have said he was sorry. I wouldn't have believed him to begin with because he doesn't strike me as a kind of guy that changes his mind very quickly. If you can say anything about Gundy, you can say that he is very resolute in what he believes in, even when what he believes in is bullshit. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, that video really, really rubbed me the wrong way. The, the picture obviously rubbed me the wrong way as well. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I mean, like you said in the beginning, OAN is, you know, it's propaganda. That's as far as I'll take it, I suppose. It is, it is propaganda for the President of the United States, and specifically. Like, they, it's not even, I wouldn't even call it right-wing news. I mean, they attend his pre President Trump's press conferences, offer up softball questions at best, and downright repugnant ones at worst. I mean, they... There was a press conference where one of the representatives, I don't bother trying to learn the names of these media, in air quotes, who work for this company, but where, you know, Trump for a long time was calling it the Chinese virus, 19, and one of the media members for OAN asked him if he considered the term Chinese food to be racist because of all the backlash that Trump was getting for saying Chinese virus. That's the kind of questions and stuff they pose. That's the kind of journalistic integrity that they try to have. They're a joke, and it's ridiculous that anybody would openly support them, particularly after what they said about the Black Lives Matter protests. And this isn't the first time, too, that Gundy's openly supported them. There was... I, maybe it was Stuart Mandel on Twitter. I don't remember exactly. Might have been another, might have been Dan Wolken even, posted a long exchange where several months ago Gundy was talking about um, OAN and how they are such a refreshing news network because they report nothing but the news. They don't try to put spin on it or anything like that. It's just the news. And what rock do you have to be living under to think that they, that what they've said, if you watch one segment of the of what OAN puts out, how can you possibly think that they're just reporting the facts or the news? Even the most extreme conservatives would have to at least admit that they are a right-wing-leaning news corporation. And I don't know. I, I It amazes me how tone-deaf Mike Gundy is, and it, I feel stupid that it does amaze me because I know who this guy is, because he's shown us time and time again who he is. And I love that you brought that up, the, you know, 
you know, believe them the first time when they show you who they are, that Maya Angelou quote, it's, it, it, it speaks exactly to who Gundy is, because he's shown us time and time again. And I think, in part, this speaks to the power dynamics that exist in a university, especially one like Oklahoma State, because, let's face it, Gundy is an institution in Stillwater, you know, this is a guy who was the starting quarterback, who took over the starting quarterback job as a cowboy, as a freshman in 1986, and then held it for the next three and a half seasons. You know, by the time he was done, he held the Big 8 record for passing yards. You know, he'd thrown for just under 8,000 yards and 49 touchdowns over those four years. Huge numbers back then. They seem, you know, midly, they seem like something Mike Leach's teams would put up at Washington State over the years in one year. But, you know, back then that was huge. And he led Oklahoma State to two 10 win seasons alongside future NFL Hall of Fame running backs Thurman Thomas and Barry Sanders. So, you know, there's a mystique around Gunny. But, you know, his first coaching jobs were in Stillwater. He was the wide receivers coach as a graduate assistant in 1990. He was the quarterback's coach from 91 to 93. He took over the offensive coordinator job from nine, in 94 and 95. And he returned as the assistant head coach and offensive coordinator under Les Miles for four years before he became the head coach. And... You know, it really comes down to the fact that in 15 seasons, he's gone 129 and 64. He is 77 and 52 in Big 12 play. He won a Big 12 title in 2011, which is huge for a school like Oklahoma State, which is consistently living in Oklahoma's shadow. And, you know, Gundy is the second highest paid employee in the state behind only Oklahoma's Lincoln Riley. But really what it comes down to, the whole reason why, you know, a large part of the fan base has not loved Gundy for a long time. They're, you know, he's a contentious guy, let's face it. Um, he had his rattlings with T. Boone Pickens when he was around, and T. Boone Pickens is the guy when you talk about Oklahoma State boosters. But he's gone 9-5 and five in 14 bowl games, and that's 14 consecutive bowl games that Oklahoma State has gone to after going 4-7 and seven in his first season. That's the whole reason why he has the power just four hours after Chuba Hubbard comes out and says, I won't do it. What were his exact words? He comes out and says... I will not stand for this. This is completely insensitive to everything going on in society, and it's unacceptable. I will not be doing anything with Oklahoma State until things change. Five hours later, he himself is the one tweeting out a video, a 51-second video, of him apologizing and Mike Gundy saying, fuck all in a word salad of nothingness. And pardon my language, but that is exactly what he offered up. And I think, 
you know, Hubbard's tweet really says it. I think it's cryptic. Change is coming. I promise you that. Yeah, I, I hope there's something planned on his part that he's not, you know, letting us in on. But I was so encouraged when I saw his initial tweet too, Zach, because it's so, it feels good to see college athletes at times realize how much power they actually hold. Because you talk about Gundy having all this power. Gundy has nothing if his players don't want to play. If his team just revolts and won't play for him, They'll replace him immediately. We talked about it last week. This is probably the arguably the most talented Oklahoma State team since that 2011 team that won the Big 12 and was you know finished third in the country and almost played for a national title. This is probably that maybe not as talented as that team, but probably as talented of a team as they've had since then. So there's a lot on the line for the Pokes this year. They are likely going to be a contender in the Big 12 and. You know, obviously, for the fans and boosters and all that, having this pop up is not great. And, you know, I, I love that I want to see more athletes like Chuba speak out on issues like this. We've seen it recently, too, at Iowa, um, you know, with the issues they had with their strength coach, who's now gone, and that bringing up, you know, systemic issues in their program and with Kirk Ferentz and all that, there could be more coming down the line for the Hawkeyes as well. So, you know, college athletes wield a lot more power than I think a lot of them know that they do. You know, they they really do, and they're starting to stand up, you know, for justice in the world, and they're beginning to, to understand the fallacy that is amateurism. And, you know, I, I hope that's a trend that continues, and I really commend Chuba, and if, you know, somehow he ever listens to this, I want him to know that I, he didn't have anything to apologize for. I don't think he did anything wrong. You could argue that he shouldn't have made public, I guess, what needed to be said, but you know what? He did need to make public what he said, and that's because Gundy all the time has made public what he thinks about situations and obviously had no issue with the picture of him being posted online, uh, or he wouldn't have been wearing a shirt like that out in public. That's, you know, if you want to wear a shirt like that, you shouldn't, but if you do, that's the kind of one you wear around your house by yourself, and you're not out fishing and stuff where a bunch of people can see you. So, I, I like I said, I commend Shuba for really standing up. I love to the, the brotherhood of his teammates coming out and supporting him immediately, you know, and, and saying they stand with him. So I love seeing that as well. And, you know, I, I really, I don't think we've seen the end of this, that little 51-second video. If Gundy thinks that's going to solve the entire problem, it's not. Because you're going to have people going out and you're going to have media members going out now and finding these former Oklahoma State players and interviewing them and trying to bring stories out of it. And there's going to be people who are willing to talk. Mike Gunny, you're tagged on this. We are not going to let up on you. John and I aren't going to let up on you. Let's face it. You know, this is the guy who, you know, when we talked about it four or five, six, who knows how many podcasts ago, about the coach we'd want to be in quarantine with. You said Mike Gundy, and part of that is because he seems like the kind of guy who would be the conspiracy theorist, like, prepper 
you know, like Doomsday Prepper who could go Ted Nugent crazy and go, you know, bow hunt a, a wildebeest and skin it live. Um, he's that kind of crazy. And he's shown that to us time and time again. And, you know, the last thing I'll leave before we go to break is I, I just, if you don't mind me taking the last word here, I just want to say, you know, first of all, I agree with you, John. Props to Chuba. I want you to use your voice. You have nothing to apologize for here. It, because of the asymmetrical power dynamics, if you had gone directly to Gundy about this, he would have done nothing about it. It would have been glossed over and painted away, and we would have never known about the extent of what's happening as players started to speak out in solidarity with you. Do not stand for this. It was completely insensitive. It is completely insensitive to everything that is going on in society. It is unacceptable. I just... I, I, The one thing that was sad for me is that four hours, five hours later, he did do something with Oklahoma State before things changed. Because you know what? That was not change. Mike Gundy did not change in those 51 seconds. You could see it in his demeanor. It, it was an, I got one over on my charges again, demeanor. Do not accept that, Chuba. I really loved the statement that came out in the tweet that sent out that video. Because change must be coming. And... I, I, I'm holding you to that promise because you're the voice that can really tip the scales. And, uh, you know, a Heisman-level talent can tip the scales, especially in a smaller town like Stillwater that depends on a talent like that to have any chance in whatever the next season looks like. So on that note... I, I just want to say solidarity to the players. They need to have everybody's back behind them because they sure as hell do not have that coach's back behind them after everything he's shown us. Thanks for uh, listening to that. And if you haven't seen it yet, go look at the video in full. Maybe take the next minute and go do that if you don't feel like listening to the ads that are about to come up. Stay tuned. We'll be with you soon. Welcome back from the break to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We had a bit of a heavy first segment there. As, you know, the topic merited, I think. And so, we're going to go into something that's I don't know, maybe a little bit more far-fetched. It's not something that's going to happen to the Oklahoma states of the world, certainly. But we've been hearing a lot more talk recently about 
you know, what's become a hot-button topic, especially with the coronavirus coursing around the world and putting athletic departments in chaos just like the rest of us are experiencing, um, you know, there's this talk about whether more schools might transition their football teams from the football bowl subdivision to the football championship subdivision, 1A to 1AA. Um, you know, this is something I actually wrote about almost a year ago last August when UConn announced plans to leave the American Athletic Conference and return to the Big East in basketball and all their other sports, but football where they're going independent. Um, but we've seen a lot more talk about it over the past week with Chris Vanini at The Athletic and Matt Brown, formerly of SB Nation, both releasing some some longer looks at this. Um, and I think it's an interesting topic to talk about. It's obviously something I really love. And, you know... I'll, I'll, I'll throw it to you, John. Do you think there's, you know, what are your initial thoughts when you look at something like this? Do you think it's something that's going to, to spring up more in the near future? Or are we going to see more Idaho's? I mean, the landscape is shifting so much in college athletics right now due to the coronavirus and all that. So I think all bets are off on really predicting how things are going to shake out. I think we're going to see some seismic shifts um, in college athletics as a whole, so that'll be really interesting to follow. Uh, I thought the, the article on, on the athletic that Chris Benini wrote was interesting because he really, I think, played both sides really well, you know, talked about how it can be conducive for some programs to make the transition, like Idaho, for instance, because they're kind of off by themselves. Uh, in a state with no other FBS programs. So they're not relatively close to any other teams. Um, so it made sense because you're playing in a conference and you're having all the travel and all that you're having to do across the country because God knows the conferences, most conferences nowadays aren't aligned the way they probably should be geographically to make things simpler for everybody and keep travel costs down. Uh, I think that's been the advantage the MAC has had for so long is that all of their programs are pretty centrally located right near each other, so it makes it easy for them and allows you know most of their programs, I would think, to be profitable in football. So you've got teams like Idaho, for instance, who it makes sense because they get into, I believe, the Big Sky Conference in the FCS, and you know they can drive to games and stuff, and, and, and everything's closer. So I, I guess the one thing I was going to ask you, Zach, if other than UConn, we've talked about UConn, I know, several times about potentially transitioning to the FCS um, as they now currently make the transition into um, football and independence. Uh, do you see any other programs out there in the FBS that you personally think it might make financial and geographical sense to make the transition downward? You know, it's it, it's obviously tough because for you have to look at it at two sides. These schools are looking at it from a prestige category. They don't mind writing off some losses. So it really comes down to how much are you willing to write off in losses as for what amounts to publicity for the school. And, you know, I think really the... 
biggest schools in danger are those that are independent. You, you mentioned a school like the MAC, and when I wrote about this last August when UConn was going independent, I thought they were going to have real trouble. Obviously, since then, they've signed the deal with CBS. They're in a position that's unique for most independents other than, obviously, Notre Dame and maybe BYU with their own BYU TV and all of that goodness that goes on. Um, you know, there are obviously ancillary forces that are working with the Cougars that aren't with other schools, given their their relationship with the Church of, you know, Latter-day Saints, uh, Mormons. Anywho, you know, you get into this, and I think it's really those independents. So I look at a school like New Mexico State, where they're geographically isolated, um... You know, if they could get into something like Conference USA, or even they could split off a, a, you know, a secondary conference, and I think that's, I won't go into that yet, let me just get my thoughts on this, but I think New Mexico State's one that could split off and go to the FCS. I also think a school like Massachusetts, where they, you know... And I wrote about this at the previous site I worked at, Sports Unbiased. I, I did a series on schools that transitioned from 1AA to 1A football. Um, some of them before it became FBS and FCS. You know, the nomenclature changes, but the dynamics stay the same. And... It, it really comes down to the fact that Massachusetts was one of those schools that was well-positioned um, because you have conferences at the 1A level with the Yankee, or the 1AA level, the FCS level with the Yankee Conference and, and the Colonial Athletic Association where they can set up a schedule that works regionally and works better for them, and they have a chance at titles. You know, they won an FCS title before they transitioned upward and played for another, if I'm not mistaken. I don't have all those notes in front of me, but I'm pretty sure that they did. They played for a second one. And in the end, you know, like, you have to acknowledge what is the level you want to be at, and do you want to have a chance at success, or is it just about marketing and your chance to play these big schools that you're never going to have a chance against? One thing that Brown and Vanini both raise is the fact that if you drop down, the guarantees in those guarantee games decrease by two-thirds. You know, you're getting 500000 for a game you used to get a million and a half for. And that has a real impact on athletic departments as well. See, everybody has to balance this out. But I think in the end, you know, when I originally wrote that article, I mentioned schools like Akron. But at the same time, a school like Akron is so centrally located in a conference like the MAC that it doesn't impact their travel nearly as much as going independent might. Whereas schools that are already independent have that issue going on. So, out of the teams that are independent right now, you know, Coastal Carolina... I think they might be in Conference USA or they're transitioning to it. Or the Sun Belt. It's one of the two. Sun Belt, uh, I think. Sun Belt. But they were originally 
an independent, but and liberty is the other independent. And you know, I think the newness of the program means they're not going to jump. And you know, Jerry Falwell's money behind it means that they're not going to jump immediately. That's a that's a that's a PR move on their part. They're willing to take that as a loss leader to continue selling the university as legitimate in the eyes of the country. It's the same thing with schools like BYU. Obviously, Army is not going to drop down. Um, so I think Massachusetts and New Mexico State are the two that I look at immediately, and I say those are probably the two. And whether or not they do really comes down to what are your options when you go down. Yeah, I wanted to circle back to what you said about the paycheck games because that's interesting. Because not only are they getting less from the FCS level to play an FBS team, but the opportunities are fewer and far in between because, you know, FBS programs can only count one FCS win towards their win total. So most teams are only scheduling one FCS team. So that greatly reduces the number of games and paychecks that are available for FCS programs. You know, as an FBS program, um, in in a conference like the MAC or the Sun Belt or even Independence, you can schedule your not you could schedule three or four of those paycheck games in non conference, get your ass kicked four times, and walk away with six million dollars from four games. And that could literally pay your entire athletic budget. You know, it sucks to lose four times, but it's nice to get six million dollars of revenue out of it. So I think that was really uh, an interesting point that was made too. Um, in that. Yeah, you know, I and I think that's really what UConn is banking on, is the fact that they can schedule with four or five different Power Five programs a season and get regular games going with them, get games going, you know, regionally with, like, the Syracuses and the Boston Colleges of the world and really revamp, you know, this sort of landscape we saw when independence reigned back in the 70s and 80s and teams were playing for the Lambert Trophy in the Northeast. Um, and that was, the, you know, the prize other than a possible national championship. So I think they're really banking on that. And certain schools can do that, you know. UMass, I don't think, has the cachet right now because they don't have a CBS contract behind them to to bolster whatever they can offer to these power five schools because you know you can offer a home and home against them because you're getting network television on cbs not cbs sports network you're getting it on cbs because if cbs is ponying up the dough for this and given what's happened with their you know sec contract i i think that's that's going to be huge and that's going to be a huge marketing point um, for teams that can't necessarily negotiate. You know, Massachusetts, even if they can get four of those games a year, they're they're going to be getting a million a year rather than a million and a half, let's say. Um, or you know, the best schools can get one point nine million even as paycheck games from the group of five. But I, I, I think in general, you know, those economics really come down to what are your, 
what is your revenue coming in versus what are your expenses for operations going out? And that's really the big thing is operating expenses because for all I've looked at over, you know, all these different programs um, for research I've done over the past 15 years of data, operating expenses are relatively flat between programs obviously some programs are spending more on their coaches they're spending more on strength and conditioning whatever you know more lavish training tables somebody bought them a putt-putt course for their their place or whatever and that gets written in that year but in general you know operating expenses traveling to games it's a relatively flat expense and it really comes down to what revenues can you bring in or how can you reduce those expenses, like you said, by making it more regional. And for some teams that could come down to finding either it, 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 it either comes down to dropping to the FCS or it comes down to recognizing we need smaller conferences you know, like, I don't know necessarily moving forward that the best thing is to be shooting for these super conferences of 14 teams or even bigger as people keep trying to push for. I think what's really important is having a tight group of teams and in geographical context that if something like a, a pandemic comes up in the future, and I I certainly don't think this will be the last pandemic I'll be dealing with in my lifetime, the way this world is going. I think you need to have something set up where at least these regional pods can continue going. They can continue operating. They can continue functioning and offering something up. And, you know, that speaks as well to what we talked about in the last segment in terms of power dynamics, because... If you don't have the player's voice in anything that's happening in this, if you're only seeing them as commodities continue driving this, the economy of the various states in which these universities operate, you're going to get exactly what we saw in the last segment with Chuba Hubbard and Mike Gundy. You're going to continue getting these flare-ups in, in the, the preconceived order. But I think, you know, in the end, for the schools themselves, you really need something that's less exhaustive. You know, if you're really talking about this being a student-first activity, and if we're classifying these kids as students, you sure as hell better think of them as students first. You know, I, I just got news from Penn State on Monday that, you know, they put out their their plan, their preliminary plan for the fall semester. And it's all about coming back to campus in a limited capacity on campus starting in August. But after, you know, Thanksgiving break, nobody comes back in the last two or three weeks of the term, including finals, are done exclusively online. And first of all, you know, it, pardon my language, but if shit is not safe 
in mid-November, what makes it safe in mid-October, what makes it safe in mid-September, what makes it safe now? We have things opening up right now that don't necessarily make it safe. And ultimately, it, it, it could be really detrimental in the long term. We've talked about the curve before. But if you're going to mitigate it, if you're going to bring back sports in some way, it's going to happen on a regional basis. That's how it happened in 1918 with the Spanish flu. That's how it's going to happen now. And I think in the future, if schools are going to have to get more creative in planning around these ways and really how do they want to be aligned with one another. So I think beyond this discussion of moving FBS, FCS, what do we talk about? We have to talk about just how are we structuring football in general moving forward. And I sure hope that discussion happens just like I hope the discussion around race in football happens. You know, that Hubbard opened up there in Stillwater. Yeah, we. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about stuff of this nature that you're starting to see it, at least in college basketball already, where teams are scheduling more regional non-conference games, games that they can travel by bus instead of by plane to and cut down on the travel costs associated with making a trip to play a game across the country, for instance. And that's probably something we'll see in college football going forward as well. Um, it's obviously easier in college basketball because the bulk of college basketball schedules are done just a few months before the season starts. And in college football, we're scheduling games uh, where I'll be 45 years old before I get to see. So um, we talked about you know how that could be an issue and stuff going forward as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I like your point that you made about smaller conferences and it's funny because, you know, what was it 10 years ago was when the craze of super conferences really started cropping up and it seemed like we were definitely heading to some kind of four 16 team or four, um, 16 team conferences. And that was where the general direction of college football. And now it seems, you know, a decade later, that's probably not conducive to, to what needs to be done for the health of the sport as a whole. So I, I definitely like that idea. I Honestly, it probably all needs to be restructured, at least in some of the smaller conferences, because, you know, some of these teams are definitely having to travel too far to play conference games and whatnot. So I know that's got to be... Uh, detrimental to their athletic budgets and all that. So um, it, it's definitely interesting. We, we're certainly living in in interesting times that you know that really it's it's hard to process and it's hard to to put a guess on what things are going to look like just a couple of months from now and especially what it's going to look like five years from now because this COVID nineteen pandemic is going to have long-term effects on you know not just sports but on everything in our lives what i think i, I i'm just going to throw out something absolutely crazy at you because i'm sitting here thinking and we're you know we're we're tailgating right now so we're sipping on some drinks and we're thinking and i'm just going to throw this out so Imagine we get absolutely radical 
you know, reimagine Division One entirely and really think regionally and really start forming, you know, eight to ten team conferences, ten at the most, you know, ideally eight to ten, and really just divide up the country into zones. Hold a 32-team tournament at the end of the season. Let them play 10 games, hold a 32-team tournament across all of Division I. And you know what you get? You get a national champion at the Division I level. You don't get the FCS and whoever comes out of, you know, the the college football playoff at the FBS level. And you don't get, you know, whoever else the NCAA approved selectors select over the years like we got with the UCF situation a few years ago. You get one champion. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately as well, because part of what I'm working on with with my recent research is just, what is the national championship? You know, over the years, you look at the first 50 years of the sport, and those national championships are all retroactive. Or really, you see in the press, they'll they'll say this one game is the national championship game, and usually it was Yale-Princeton those first 20, 30 years of the sport. Or, you know, conversely, it might have been Yale-Harvard one of those years, but usually Yale was involved in one way or another. Um, and, you know, they were all selected, you know, acknowledged retroactively, but until you start getting the Associated Press polling in 1936, you really don't have any mechanism. And even then, that mechanism comes before bowl games until the late 60s. And, you know, even after that, you have multiple polls at that point. So you get split national championships. And all of the charge throughout college football history has been designed around finding one definitive national champion for that year, being able to say this was the team. And until you acknowledge, until you either completely divorce yourself from Division One AA football, until you say the FCS is Division Two and everybody else pushes down below it, or you you acknowledge that they are Division One, and you say, let's figure out how to find one Division One champion, you're always going to have questions around this. Because, you know, for as, you know, much as we might knock North Dakota State's schedule, they've been the FCS champion eight of the past nine years. Who are we to say that in a playoff format, they might not be able to go on a run and knock off somebody just like the other titans of the sport. Until we can really definitively say that, we always have questions. So I, I think we have to think radically about this. Or This is, this is the, the make-it-or-break-it moment for the sport. So much could happen right now between player agency between what the landscape really looks like between how how schools really structure their finances around this sport 
and and now's the time to have these discussions. And I think the more radical we get, the better it is because if you're leading off with the least possible thing that you want in a negotiation, you're not going to get anything you want. Some people like regional rivalries. Like, it's fun to play teams who are close to the school that you root for. You know, there's the bragging rights of all that. We've talked about it before, too. It's ridiculous that Texas and Texas A&M can't figure out how to play a game against each other every year. Like, fans of those schools want to play each other. They might talk a talk like they don't and want to be stubborn, but they do. They want to play against. The Aggies want to play the Longhorns. The Longhorns want to play the Aggies. That's just how it should be. That's a game that fans, even neutral fans, like to see. You know, those are the games that we tune in for, these in-state or cross-state lines, close rivalry matchups. I mean, I look at it, too, from the standpoint of Alabama and Georgia Tech, for instance. Used to be massive rivals back in the, you know, 60s and 70s. They played every single year, and they haven't played in a very long time. I think they have a a series coming in the next decade or so. Um, But that used to be a thing. Alabama and Georgia Tech were heated rivals. They played every single year. Tuscaloosa's about a four-hour drive from Atlanta, so it's... It's close. It's within yeah. close proximity. Yeah. So it, well, those it, are the games that people want to see. Well, and that's the thing is realignment and everything impacts those things. The whole reason Georgia Tech and Alabama play less is that Georgia Tech left the SEC to go help form the ACC in 1953. And, it, you know, they were able to maintain it for a little while longer over the next couple decades as a, you know, a non-conference game. But as conferences grew and you had to play more games against conference teams and those schedules became standardized, those opportunities became fewer and farther between. But you're absolutely right. You know, the games I cared about as a kid were the battle for Paul Bunyan's axe because I rooted for Wisconsin I hated Minnesota, and the border war. You know, playing for the bronze boot against Colorado State because those those you know Rams from from Fort Collins, I I hated them. I love the color green, but you pair it next to gold, and it makes me want to vomit. So, yeah, I I I totally agree. I mean, that's it. I mean, back to Alabama, Georgia Tech too. Like in Alabama's fight song, it talks about beating Georgia Tech. You know, it doesn't seem, it doesn't even make sense that those teams don't play like they should. So, if we can get to the point where we can get these kind of regional rivalries back, I think that would be huge for the sport, because it's going to, it's going to, you know, attendance has been an issue in college football recently. You've seen plenty of writers come out with articles talking about the lack of attendance for some college football games. Well, games like that will put asses in seats because they're easy for people to get to road fans can travel to see these games because it's not a five-hour plane ride where you have to get a hotel and all that you can drive to some of these games and then drive right back home afterward you know you don't even have to to book a hotel yep so that would increase attendance i think it would increase viewership on television and all that like obviously it's fun 
at times to see cross-country teams play each other. We're both jacked to get to watch Ohio State go to Eugene and play Oregon because those aren't teams that play very often. But also, we want to see these teams who are close to each other get to play. We want to see Texas and Texas A&M. I want to see Alabama and Georgia Tech play again. Yep. So, you know, there's there's definitely a happy medium somewhere in there that we should be able to get to. Well, and that's why I think eight-team conferences are great, because you can always play every other team in your conference and still have three non-conference opportunities there. And you can either choose to schedule it against the the conference in the next, you know, region over, or you can schedule across the country if you want to. You know, you have that option as a team. But I think normalizing the distance that, that teams have to travel is really critical. And, you know, I, I think I, I just got inspired to write something over at the Saturday Blitz website soon because... I've been looking at this from just an FBS angle recently and how you might shrink this down, but I think you have to include the FCS in this and really look at Division One as a, a whole component in its entirety to really understand how we could break this down in a way that determines one national champion. So... You know, I, I think we veered a long way off of the original question we were asking about whether more schools should transition from the FBS to the FCS. And I think what we really came up with in the end is we should just fucking get rid of FBS and FCS and just have a Division One. Yeah, if there's anything we're good at, for those listening would know, it's rambling and turning one topic into nine other ancillary topics that come out of it. Well, with that said, you have any last words you want to add to this subject before we sign off for the week, John? You know, I, I think we hit it really well. That was definitely veered astray, I guess, from the original topic, but those are always my favorite topics to discuss with you, Zach, because I always produce something interesting or or fodder for something else to be discussed at a later date. Damn right. So for those of you out there that are first-time listeners, you got a feel for the way we play with things around here and the way we, you know, grapple with subjects. And, you know, for those of you that have been listening regularly, welcome back. You got you, you got what you came for, I guess, because you probably expected us to do something crazy like that. But in conclusion, you know, I stand with Chuba. Black Lives Matter. I, I want you all to stay safe out there because the coronavirus is not gone yet. Let's continue being smart about this because we want football back in, in its best form as soon as possible. Love you all. Thank you for tuning in. Until next Wednesday, stay safe.